TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman. For 15 years, Debbie has been talking with designers and other creative people about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about and working on. On this episode, a conversation with Stephen Heller about the long and troubled history of the swastika. The sign is there for people to use or not use. The question I'm asked most is, is it redeemable or not? Here's Debbie. Stephen Heller has published another book. For longtime listeners of Design Matters, where Stephen Heller is a frequent guest, this will not come as breaking news. This is simply reassuring news that, yes, one of our most revered and respected writers on culture and design is at it again. Steve's new book is unfortunately all too timely. Its title is The Swastika and Symbols of Hate, Extremist Iconography Today. It's a thorough reworking and update of a previous book, and it tracks the Nazi symbol from its historical origins into the present day. Steve Heller, welcome back to Design Matters. Great to be here as usual. As I was preparing to start my research for this episode, I was watching Marvel's Captain America Winter Soldier, and in a pivotal scene, one of the characters asks Cap if he's going to go into battle dressed in his street clothes, and he responds rigorously and confidently, if you're going to fight a war, you got to wear a uniform. And I knew at that moment that I had to open the show by sharing that with you. If you're going to fight a war, you got to wear a uniform. Even fighting attire is branded now. Mm-hmm. Actually, it's been branded for a long time because flags were one of the first devices used to signify on the battlefield where you needed to go before they were mass-manufactured uniforms. Right. And flags that were taped or stuck onto the backs of samurai soldiers. Oh, I didn't realize that that was also done. Yeah. 
I understand your book, The Swastika and Symbols of Hate, was originally turned down by a number of publishers. So for quite some time, you were prepared to publish it yourself. Why did so many publishers turn it down? I went to the wrong publishers. And uh, it was a controversial book, uh, particularly given that uh, it was about Nazi iconography. And nobody wanted to do it. Interestingly enough, I went to uh, had lunch with the publisher of Abrams, and he said, I would have done it. Well, now it seems that anyone would have done it, given the kind of world we're currently living in. What ultimately changed to get a publisher to pick it up? Because it was not—you didn't self-publish the book. No, I didn't self-publish the book. And Mirko Illich, who did the cover for this and the earlier edition— said it would be wrong for me to publish the book. Uh, So I went to Allworth Press, Tad Crawford as publisher. You've published with Tad. And he was very excited about doing it. He didn't feel that there would be a, a problem, a backlash. In fact, they were very proactive in getting me uh, radio publicity. I was on a score of early morning hog-feeding shows. (laughs) I understand that Tad also wanted this edition to address the current rise of ultra-right fanaticism, which it does. In the introduction to the book, you state that the swastika holds a deep fascination for graphic designers who work with trademarks and logos. It is one of the most visually powerful symbols ever devised. No other mark, not even variations of the cross, or for that matter, the Nike swoosh, are as graphically potent. And you go on to say that the Nazi swastika is a visual obscenity. And I was wondering if you could tell me a little bit more about what you mean by visual obscenity. I'd never heard that term before. Well, it is the embodiment of hate. Uh, It didn't start out that way. And There are many people who hope and pray that it won't end up that way. But it is the embodiment of hate. It is the result of criminality. And it is uh, such a powerful force that you cannot help but respond to it if you're a Westerner in a particularly emotional way. Let's talk about the history of the mark. Originally, the symbol itself was once the mark of good fortune, and it gets its name from the Sanskrit word fastika, meaning well-being, good fortune, and luck, and actually refers to the Indian mythic figure Svastikaya. It was found among India's first civilized remains as early as 2500 B.C., It also seems that for ancient Indians, it was not just a symbol, but also a concept related to the rise of ritual worship and was even carved into the foot of Buddha, a sacred Buddhist stone carving. How do you think it became a religious symbol? That's unclear. There's a a terrific book that follows its trajectory from what I would call prehistory through history. It was done in 1896 by Thomas Wilson, who worked for the Smithsonian Institution, and he found it on the four corners of the map. There is no real answer to why it exists. 
And some people think that uh, it may have been a mechanical device, a barometric pressure device. Uh, others feel that it just represented an indigenous culture. Uh, and it has a diaspora that is incredible because you find it in Indian subcontinent cultures, as well as African cultures, as well as Southeast Asian cultures, as well as American Indian cultures. And it even pops up in a few synagogues. I'm actually going to list out how often it shows up in our long history. But for now, by all accounts, through most of its history, you call the swastika, um, you term the, the zealot of all symbols, was comparatively benign. Um, this is what I learned from your book. Prior to its transfiguration, it served as religious phylactery, occult talisman, scientific symbol, guild emblem, meteorological implement, commercial trademark, architectural ornament, printing floron, and military insignia. And you detail how H.J.D. Astley stated in his own 1925 book, The Swastika, a study, that the symbol was first signified the course of the sun in the heavens revolving normally from left to right. What do you think it is about the structure of the symbol that has made it so versatile? Well, it's a quadrant. It's four squares. Uh, it's perfectly geometrical, although there are curvilinear swastikas, there are three-legged swastikas, there are uh, a whole bunch of varieties. But I think ultimately what made it so powerful is its ubiquity. And how that ubiquity happened is not something I was able to find out. It is truly fascinating. In 1894, Thomas Wilson, the curator of the Department of Prehistoric Anthropology, published a profusely illustrated book-length report titled The Swastika, the Earliest Known Symbol and Its Migrations. And in his preface, he explained that the straight line, the circle, the cross, and the triangle are all simple forms easily made and might have been invented and reinvented in every age of primitive man and in every quarter of the globe, each time being an independent invention, meaning much or little. And you go on to say, conversely, the swastika was probably the very first symbol to be made with the definite intention and a continual or consecutive meaning, the knowledge of which passed from person to person, from tribe to tribe, from people to people, and from nation to nation, until with possibly changed meetings, it finally circled the globe. Would you agree that you think that this is really the first constructed symbol that wasn't represented in nature? I would say so. It's pure speculation. But every piece of evidence leads to that conclusion. The swastika has so many antecedents that have other names and different meanings in all of these cultures. But I think it all comes down to it's the sun. The sun is the center of our universe, and the symbol is that representation of that center. I read that some tribes had it representing rain and lightning. I believe the ancient god of sacred fire that the archaeologist Emily Louis Burnoff discovered that that described the mark signifying 
how two pieces of wood are used to start a fire. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really come up quite a long way. That historical background is fascinating and at the same time very disturbing because what ultimately happens in the 19th century is it moves into this occultist realm. It's already a mythic symbol, but once the occultists grabbed hold of it, it is transformed into something else. It becomes a tabula rasa for a lot of different meanings. I have a list of all of the various, and it's not, I shouldn't say all, it's not exhaustive, but it's fairly substantive of the historical symbology. It was established as a Jane icon typifying animal, human, and celestial life. It also represents Brahma, Vishnu, and Siva, creator, preserver, and destroyer. It stood for Jupiter, Tonins, and Pluvius of the Latins, and Thor of the Scandinavians. You state in your book that it also is said to have had a relationship to the lotus sign of Egypt and Persia. It appears on monuments to the goddesses Artemis, Hera, Demeter, Astarte, and the Chaldean Nana, the leading goddess from Hisarlik. It gives credence as a sign of fertility. In 1874, Dr. Heinrich Schliemann discovered swastika decorations during his archaeological excavation of Homeric Troy. He later traced similar iterations to Babylonia, Tibet, Greece, Ashanti on the Gold Coast of Africa, Gaza, Lapland, Paraguay, and Asia Minor. It was discovered painted or etched into Etrusian pottery, Cyprian vases, and Corinthian coins. Steve, I'm only halfway done. Right. It has a, a nice past. Uh, you want to hear more? Just Well, just think <laughs> what would happen if somebody owned the rights to the symbol. Well, that's the other interesting thing. No one owns the rights. No, no one, one owns the copyright to the swastika. Although no it one. is in many different trademark registration books. During the Gallico-Roman period, the symbol was found on stone pedestals and altars. In England and Scotland, it was known as the Fielfot, as in many feet, and was the embodiment of good fortune and auspicious beginnings. A large mosaic swastika ornamented an ancient synagogue floor in Israel. A copper swastika was unearthed in the 19th century in several Native American sites. During the 19th century, the swastika was a Masonic sign. In the 1920s, it was selected as the peace symbol for the League of Nations Vilna Commission. In the 1930s, it was a graphic device on the national flags of Estonia, Finland, and Latvia. The Kuna Indians in Panama established the Republic of Tool with a flag that had a counterclockwise swastika emblem. How did this happen, Steve, in the history of the world? There is not a symbol that was used more. No. And uh, you missed a few. <laughs> because uh, you'd, you'd point that out. It, <laughs> I was trying to was, make that readable. In, in uh, Finland, it's called the Hakaristi. Uh, it goes by different names. In France, it's the Gamon. How it happened is a mystery. But that it was always benign is a constant. And that it ultimately became toxic is the saddest thing that comes out of this whole study. I want to talk a little bit more about the history of the mark 
and how it was used before we start to talk about how it was abused. Um, Because it was also, really surprisingly, a really popular commercial trademark. On common products, it was universally adopted by merchants and manufacturers on cigar labels, fruit wrappers, box tops, business signs, logos, playing cards, poker chips. Until 1933, Rudyard Kipling combined a swastika with his handwritten signature in a circle as a personal logo on many editions of his books. And most surprisingly, in the early 1900s, Coca-Cola issued a swastika good luck pendant bottle opener. I wonder if you can find that on eBay. The U.S. Playing Card Company registered it in 1921 as a trademark for fortune playing cards, and Carlsberg etched it into the bottoms of their beer bottles until the mid-30s. It seems as if all the major brands at the time wanted in on the action. And given that the symbol was never trademarked, it's interesting that at that time, so many people used a similar mark. That's something that could never happen today, no matter how popular or unpopular something could be. Well, it was building on the reputation uh, and the history and the legacy of the mark itself. I call it the incidental swastika. What does that mean? It means it pops up in places where it has no reason for being other than Somebody felt it meant good luck. It's like and a meme. It's a, it's a meme of, of the past. It's a meme of the past. Unfortunately, it's also a meme of the present. You also mentioned that the Boy Scouts used it. The Boy Scouts had a version of it. The Girls Club of America had their magazine named Swastika, and they gave any young girl who uh, sold a certain amount of magazine subscriptions, they would get a swastika with a fake diamond-studded center. Is it true that Paul Clay included the swastika in the very first logo of the Bauhaus? There is a swastika form in the Bauhaus logo that Clay did, yes. Why did it end up not being used? Was it something that... Well, it was used for a while, and then they just changed logos. When the Nazis closed down the school for being seditiously avant-garde, did they realize that the swastika was part of the logo? No, but that gets us into the history of the logo in relation to the Nazis in that particular period of time, actually starting before the Nazis in the late 19th and early 20th century, is really fascinating. Can you talk a little bit about that? Tell us about that time. Part of it goes back to Heinrich Schliemann when he found the swastika in Troy It was considered a very important ritualistic symbol uh, that went back to a race of people that did not ever exist called the Aryans that came out of India and worked their way into Europe. So they're called the Indo-Europeans. And once that became part of the mythology, people started looking at the swastika as having whatever meanings they could place on it. So what happened was there were very many racialist ideas. And I'm careful not to call the racialists racists, even though that's what ultimately emerges. But there was distinction between the races. And the swastika symbol 
represents those distinguishing characteristics. What is the difference between a racialist and a racist? A racialist is somebody that acknowledges the difference in race. They're not necessarily prejudicial. They're not necessarily dealing with race in opposition. They're just making a distinction between races. They're aware of the race difference. If the Aryans weren't a real group of people, how was the notion of them created? Well, there were people who came out of this part of India, in the Indus Valley, who were light-skinned. And through pseudoscience, fake news, if you will, it was determined that they were the ancestors of the Nordic peoples. And why were they considered superior? Well, that goes into other myths. There was a race of giant priests who had all the knowledge in the world, and they were Nordic, or they came from the north. You know, it, it's kind of like Game of Thrones. I was going to say, I kind of got a vision of Thor Ragnarok in, in my head as you were describing these priests. Uh, yeah, well, these things like Game of Thrones come from somewhere. And right. They come from myths that did exist. Also, the swastika that traveled along with them wasn't necessarily a bad thing at the time. But from that group of people that were considered these super beings, uh, there came swastikalists. <laughs> wow. Uh, people that believed deeply that the swastika was a sign against other races and particularly Jews. So the Nazis didn't select the swastika for its striking graphic quality alone. It was chosen for them by the pseudoscientists and folklorists and occultists who believed that it was a sacred totem. Yeah. Do you remember the Ankh mm -hmm. when we Absolutely. were hippies? Yeah, yeah, I do. I had one. Uh, well, it's the same idea that it comes out of history that there are spiritual energy forces that are around Wasn't it. it an Egyptian peace sign? It was an Egyptian sign, yeah, and used by hippies as a peace sign. So the Nazis, they produced graphic design that amplified their message built on this strategic application of mythic imagery. And it was used before the Nazis. First of all, it was used by occultist Germanic groups, there was a magazine called Ostara, which was a magazine for blonde Aryan beings, mostly men. Uh, and they used the swastika. There was the Germanan order that saw the swastika as the sun symbol and therefore the central symbol of life. And they used the symbol. By the time it reached the political realm, it was used for the Freikorps divisions. Uh, those were the German paramilitary troops that fought against the Republic after World War I. And by the time it got to the Nazi party or Hitler, he had come up with all sorts of rationales for using it. But one of the key factors was to take it out of the realm of the occult and make it into the realm of real politic. Can you talk about the relationship between George Lanz and Adolf Hitler? 
the relationship was one of mentor to mentee. There were a number of people who had philosophies about swastika and race and superiority versus inferiority, Ubermensch versus Untermensch. And Lance was one of those. Uh, there was also a, a man named Sibetentov. They belonged to different orders, the Tula Society, which kind of fed into the Nazi party. Hitler was not a dummy. He read a lot. And he read the magazine Ostara. And so he got a number of his ideas, certainly about race, through that publication. And that was Lance's publication, is that correct? Yeah. And various biographies of Hitler indicate that he shared a lot of the beliefs that Lance published in Ostara and reportedly visited Lance to obtain missing issues. And then after the Nazis came to power, I don't know if this is true. I, I'm curious to know your, your perspective. I read that Hitler banned Lance's writing, perhaps as a way for him to disavow the fact that Hitler was influenced by anything other than his own ideas. Well, that's true. He wanted to be unique. It's like Trump firing all of his cabinet mem members. You know, narcissism has uh, no a powerful bounds. effect and <laughs> yeah. no bounds. Ex exactly. Uh, no, it was part of the idea that his organization had to be political and it had to be above ground. Interestingly enough, the SS became the keepers of the occult flame. In what way? Well, Heinrich Himmler sent uh, a whole group of pseudoscientists, people with doctor in front of their names, because it was easy to get a doctorate in Germany. Really? Uh, to Nepal to find the source of life. And his whole liturgy, SS liturgy, was based on myths, you know, fiction that would then support a certain ideology and a way of thinking that curiously became widespread. The idea that, you know, there was a Superman, which goes back to Nietzsche, of course, but the blonde, blue-eyed Aryan man was Superman. I read in your book how Lance further advocated keeping what he called brood mothers in convents to be impregnated by Aryan stud males. The whole idea was to populate the earth with these descendants of the Aryans. And, um, you know, we talk about ethnic cleansing today. That's what they were doing. They were ethnically cleansing so that they could replace what they cleaned with fresh blood. You write in your book how by commandeering the public stage, the Nazis convinced malleable citizens that their enemies, Jews and Bolsheviks, were the cause of Germany's post-war grief and should be humiliated, punished, and, as you mentioned, eradicated. From daily newspapers to weekly message posters, graphic design served to both frame and bolster a visual language that vilified the foe. As far as you know, is this the first instance of graphic design being used in this way? No, graphic design in the broad sense had been used much earlier. Well, I don't mean graphic design as a communicative visual tool. I mean graphic design to perpetrate evil ideas. 
Well, if you look at caricature and cartoon, which broadly speaking is graphic design, that was used to proffer hateful thought or uh, alternative commentary. I had just been reading a, a book about the, the Dreyfus Affair in France, and the same rhetoric was used, the same anti-Semitic rhetoric was used in France against Dreyfus as you would hear in Nazi Germany. And there were publications, there were posters, there were leaflets that were all designed. Some were designed for, some were designed against. So Hitler's graphic design sensibility uh, came out of the fact that he was an artist. Was he an artist or was he a failed artist? Well, you can be an artist and still have failed. That's true. Actually, if you look at his paintings, they're better than I can do. He understood what imagery could do. Where did he learn that? It's hard to say. I mean, he tried to get into the Austrian Kunstgewebeschule in Vienna. But he didn't get in. That's he sort of where that failed artist in. trope is. Uh, he may have taught himself. He certainly thought of himself as an artist, and Joseph Goebbels said that the Fuhrer is an artist who's decided to hold his art back so he can save the German people, and once he's done that, he's going to go back to being an artist. Can you imagine if he had gotten accepted to the school in Vienna? Yeah, we wouldn't be talking here today. In fact, we probably wouldn't be here today because our relatives would still be living in Europe. Mm. You told me before our interview today that Hitler actually never used the term swastika to describe the mark. Correct. There's a, a book out by T.K. Nakagai, who is a Buddhist priest. And he wrote a book about the Buddhist swastika versus the Nazi cross. Hitler never used the word in Mein Kampf, at least, if not ever, swastika. He called it the Hakenkreuz, or hooked cross. And what T.K. is saying in his book is that it's because a lot of the rhetoric that was used by Hitler had tinges of Christianity, of Christian ritual. Uh, he was born a Christian. When he spoke, he spoke of deliverance. He spoke in words that could be easily used in a church. But he did not want the Church of Rome or the Protestant Church to be the dominant. He wanted the Nazi religion to take over, and therefore he had a cross that indeed was not the same kind of cross or crucifix that Christ was killed on. You state while both the swastika and the hammer and sickle were effective, Hitler owned his mark while Stalin borrowed his. Right. Can you elaborate? Well, there has been conversation uh, that the swastika represented the embodiment of Hitler. Even though Hitler didn't invent this mark, the Hakenkreuz, the Hakenkreuz was already there. Um, so he appropriated it. He appropriated it. And I have a semi-funny story to tell you about that appropriation. But it was there when he wasn't. The swastika and Hitler were one in the same just as the swastika and the Reich were one and the same, just as Hitler and the Reich were one and the same. Stalin 
was a usurper. He muscled his way into the leadership of the USSR. His god, so to speak, was Lenin. And he did everything he could to be effectually uh, recognized as Lenin's successor. The hammer and sickle had existed in different forms before the Soviet Union won the revolution and the Civil War. The Nazi cross, the Hackenkreuz, existed in history, but it didn't exist as a political mark. So in that sense, Hitler owned the mark. Why do you think that the hammer and sickle have not been as stigmatized as the swastika? Well, I think it really comes down to a kind of social sensibility. When the Vietnam War was going on, the left identified with the communists. The communists beat the fascists in World War II. So the symbol did not have the same negative impact across the board. I mean, ultimately, it was negative. And, you know, if you look at it today, I'm sure there will be a, a visceral response, but not the same kind of visceral response as looking at the swastika. Just even glancing at the swastika sends chills up most people's spine. The hammer and sickle just never got the same rap. Uh, it wasn't banned by the Russian government when Russia gave up the communist ghost. It was banned by the German government after World War II, um, and it continues to be officially banned at all public displays. The swastika. Yes. Despite that, a flag of the American Nazi Party was founded in December of 1959, is still being used, The swastika endures in some form in every country where racial hatred exists in the United States. It's still angrily scrawled in public places, in subways, in synagogues. And it's a, as you write, a trenchant reminder that people are fluent in the visual language of hate. But there have also been unintended uses of related visual language. For example, until I read your book, I didn't know that the 1976 poster for the band KISS featured letter forms of the two S's in the band's name, which bore an unfortunate resemblance to the SS. Alice Ace Fraley, who designed the original logo, one of the members of the band, rounded out the S's in 1980. Um, But given that three of the original KISS members are Jewish, I don't think it was intentional. It wasn't intentional. It was gothic. It was... They were lightning bolts. I mean, you can apply your sensitivities to just about anything. I tend to think it looks too much like the SS logo. But it's it's all part of the debate about political correctness. How far can you go doing something that is going to be offensive without having intended to be? Tell us the funny story. Well, there was a, a very important graphic designer named Wilhelm Defke. He was a logo designer. And in Mein Kampf, there's, uh, which is a horrible book to read, so I don't recommend anybody do it, although it continues to bring in money from sales all over the world, there is an almost perfect design criticism of the swastika and its color combinations. And in it, Hitler mentions a jeweler who uh, named Dunkelfuss, I think, who fabricated the swastika for him. Well, I got a letter uh, from the late Paul Rand from a woman who said she was Defke's assistant 
And Defke was part of a firm that included uh, Mr. Foose, which is probably just a coincidence or maybe not. Anyway, she said that the Nazis saw in his proposal book, his portfolio, a version of the swastika, which I have and he did. Uh, and he did it as one of many trademarks that look as modern as you can get, very minimalist trademarks, very bold, very graphic. And she said that the Nazis took his design and never paid him for it. <laughs> I guess that is sort of funny. Um, sort of. <laughs> where does all the money that people pay to buy Mein Kampf go? I'm not exactly sure. Uh, I had heard that it went towards the reparations that were being paid to survivors and survivors' families. There was Hitler's nephew who lived in Long Island, Patrick Hitler. Right, and didn't change his name. Didn't change his name, but didn't particularly like his uncle. But there's a fund somewhere where these royalties end up. Steve, this this interest of yours in the Holocaust, in the symbolism of the Nazis has been a lifelong quest. I'm afraid so. Why? How can we explain obsession? Uh, when I was a kid, I was interested in militaria. I went to a military school for a little while. I became interested in the artifacts of the military. When I became old enough to realize that uh, this was not a path I wanted to take, I was still interested in the design of militaria. And that led me to Germany and elsewhere uh, in all periods of time. And because of my own upbringing, I found the swastika to be a telling tale and a door that opened onto a past that I was very tangentially involved in. But I remember, and I've written about this, a cousin who had been in World War II brought back a Nazi battle flag, and we would always go to his house for Passover. And he and, uh, or his son and I, would take out the battle flag and start waving it throughout the apartment. And there were some Holocaust survivors there oh who would speak to us very sternly. I can only imagine. So I kind of became aware of the power of that symbol through that. I mean, that's a simplistic way of explaining it. But once I became a graphic designer, I saw the swastika being used in so many different ways, often as a way of describing and I think this is a double-edged sword, but often as a way of describing leaders, our own leaders, that uh, we disagree with. And uh, that made me want to explore the symbol even further because I wanted to make sure, either consciously or unconsciously, that if I were making those commentaries, I wasn't doing something that was downright stupid. You write in your book how symbolism plays a huge role in propagating unsavory ideas in detail, how something as innocent as tiki torches have become symbols of hate when they were co-opted by white supremacists in the Charlottesville, Virginia's Unite the Right rally in 2017. And when this happens, it's hard not to feel that the alt-right fringe is no longer 
on the fringe, and you go on to state that those who advocate today's view of America have new names, young faces, and fresh symbols, but their rhetoric of supremacy and exclusion is as old as the republic itself and demands continued vigilance. Steve, can symbolism fight this? Can our own symbolism fight this, or do we need something stronger? Well, symbolism is just the tip of the iceberg. You know, you you see those, the photographs, and I use one photograph in the book, of these very angry men carrying the tiki torches, and one of them has a polo shirt on with a logo for, I think it's the Europa Group, uh, which is a fascist group. Or you read in the paper about the Proud Boys, who are kind of alt-right, preppy group. Yeah, but they're dressing like Trump, from what I understand. And there's a term for it, the chads. Is that right? The chads fight the normies. Okay. Um, And it all is surrounded by and part of internet culture, subculture. But I don't think you can fight symbolism with symbolism anymore. Maybe you could have. When? Uh, Before there was an internet, perhaps before there was television, perhaps before there were movies. Because if you think of the film Birth of a Nation, that brought to light the KKK in a way that many people hadn't seen it before. You could argue that that was a good thing to make this underground overground, or you could say it was a recruitment film. And the second stage of the Ku Klux Klan was when this country had millions of them in government and in churches and in social networks. We might still. Probably. This is a racist country. And we say it now almost as if it's a foregone conclusion and therefore we don't have to do much about it. You know, you, you hear the candidates in the debates saying we are we were built on racism and we are we continue to be racist. So I think we have to first fight that idea that there's some legitimacy to that. Is that why you think that the make America great again slogan is actually a threat? You said that it's not a slogan, it's a threat. It's a threat. Yeah. I think it's commanding. It's an order. Germany awake was Hitler's make America great again. But also I've read in some English translations, make Germany great again. You know, when you start using the word great and then add again, certain connotations fly. And that's the case with the symbols in this book that represent the today extremists. Uh, They are snippets of what was used in the past. They take radical Christianity, they take Nazism, they take fascism in the form of uh, the fasci, which also never got as bad a rap as the swastika. Uh, And they bring it together, and now under a new guise. You know, you you used to be able to tell who your right-wing characters were by the tattoos they wore or the garb they wore. Now it's harder. Now they wear suits. That was all David Duke's brilliant idea. Get out of the robes and put on a a suit and a vest. Why do you think that the Make America Great Again hat became so popular? Because people like to identify. It's why you said at the outset, 
If you're going to fight a war, wear a uniform. People like to know that they're part of a community, and uniformity is often the bedrock of any community. Uh, when I was a kid, I wanted to wear a uniform, which is why I went to a military school or even joined the Boy Scouts for that matter. Uniformity is strength in numbers. It's belonging. It's also exclusion. You state in your book that the irredeemable swastika remains the most damning symbol of our time. Yet whatever connotes authoritarian rule, the logo, the uniform, code, polo shirt, or red MAGA baseball hat, in this age, as The Atlantic eloquently noted, the most enduring scandal in and around the White House might not be corruption, but rather the administration's constant embrace of bigotry from white supremacist and far-right groups. What can we do? How can we combat this? Well, I fall back on making people aware. The largest applause that I heard, the loudest applause at the debates is when one of the candidates or two of the candidates say we are fighting a racist war with a racist president. I think continuing to make racism, the word, as much of a curse as other curse words. It's a word that should be said, but it has to have the power of uh, a kind of redemption not of the act of racism, but a kind of response to racism. When you say racist, you have to feel shivers. Right. You know, now politicians, nobody wants to be called a racist, but they don't mind being called, as Trump said, nationalist. And nationalist is a synonym for exclusionist. And exclusionist is a synonym for racialist and racist. Steve, thank you for writing this timely book. It is something that I think allows us to understand in a way that I have yet to come across how the symbolism of our humanity influences the way we think and the way we behave and the way that we live. Well, it also, for me, is a cathartic act. You know, we are designers. We brand things. We have a role to play in all of this, whether it's an overt or a covert role, whether it's known or surreptitious. We have to be aware that there are consequences in what we do. And one of the things I point out in the book is that there are stupid uses of the swastika. Some of them are anti-fascist. Like what? Well, there's... A cigarette ad, maybe it's not in this edition of the book, uh, for no smoking. And it has a swastika on it. And their photograph of a picture of cigarettes called Adolf. Oh, God. You know, it wasn't meant to be Nazi. It was meant to use the Nazis as a foil. Branding also, by proxy. <laughs> branding by proxy. Also, there are a number of anti-fascist music groups who use the, the swastika. Dead Kennedys, the yeah. Dead Kennedys had their... And that was re-released this year. So the sign is there for people to use or not use. And the question I'm asked most is, is it redeemable or not? Can it be used the way other obscenities are used to empower the people who are the targets of those obscenities? And I feel not. 
I feel you don't play with fire like that. And this is fire that is more than being played with. If you look through Europe, Hungary, Poland, the popular fronts in various countries, they're using symbols that represent nativist and discriminatory ideas and ideals. Steve, my last question for you is about some of your other upcoming books. You're over 200 now, right? How many books I've is it? I've stopped counting. Okay, well, we're 200 and counting. I know that. Um, tell us what else we can keep our eyes out for. Well, just coincidentally, I have a book out with Gail Anderson called The Logo Idea Book. It's the other side of the swastika. Designed for good? I don't know whether it's good or not, but, you know, it includes the FedEx logo and a few other things. It's design that has not been tainted. I have a book coming out about Paul Rand in the Moleskin series, which is Paul Rand's sketches mm. uh, that he did when he just wasn't thinking about anything. He was just jotting stuff down. And I have a book that's coming out uh, next fall or spring uh, called Diagrams of New York. Ooh, you're going to have to come back and we have to talk about that. Absolutely. I'm doing that with a Cyprian Barcelonan, Barcelonan named uh, Antonius Antonin. Well, thank you so much for always inspiring conversations and... Thank you for joining me today on Design Matters. Well, thank you for taking the time to really read the book more than I've read the book. <laughs> well, you wrote it, so you don't have to read it again. Stephen Heller's latest book, the book we've been talking about, is The Swastika and Symbols of Hate, Extremist Iconography Today. You can find out what else he's thinking about on his site, hellerbooks.com, and on designobserver.com. This is the 15th year I've been doing Design Matters, and I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we can do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our brand new Patreon community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live shows, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at patreon.com forward slash Debbie Millman. If you subscribe to this podcast through Apple Podcasts, please write a review or link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is recorded at the School of Visual Arts, Masters in Branding Program in New York City, the first and longest running branding program in the world. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Wyland.